Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. You are getting me yet again another week, and you're getting me fresh. This is a another new show, although the uh, middle, our interview, will be a replay interview because it's incredibly difficult to be finding people to interview during the virus, although I'm happy to report to you that next week I will have a fresh interview. So, um, hello, everyone. How are you doing? <laughs> um, I am still trying to keep this show as normal as possible, although I will talk to you human to human at the end in my C block. But I have some fresh material here for us in our A block, um, all to give you a sense of normalcy. And, yes, we are all on lockdown here in Minnesota and in other parts of the U.S. and the world, although I will tell you, not entirely in the U.S., but don't get me started. But um, many of us are glued to the daily briefings, um, uh, but now we just need to do some plain old vanilla, to just have some vanilla in our life. And that's me. That's where I come in. So shall we start? Our block A is always a featured idealist, and this week it's an icon of the civil rights movement, the Reverend Joseph Lowry, who um, his name has been in the press of late because he did pass away at the end of March. Um, but you know what? I did not know a whole lot about um, Reverend Lowry. And, and by the way, uh, he has been called the dean of the civil rights movement. Uh, and in, and um, he understood at a very early age how the deck was stacked against people of colors other than the white color. So here's the uh, 211, 411, however we want to call it. Growing up in Alabama in the 1920s and 30s, Reverend Lowry experienced full-throated Jim Crow and later recounted an incident where a white-colored policeman punched him in the gut. He was a teenager. He was like 13 years old. The policeman used his billy club, punched Reverend Lowry in the gut, um, and made him get out of the way because there was a white man coming through. Um, interestingly, as uh, with this incident, Reverend Lowry, of course not a reverend then, but still a teenage boy, ran home to get a gun. Um, but his father, small store owner, talked uh, Joseph Flowery out of using the gun, which, of course, was the best possible advice that he could have gotten. While still in high school, Reverend Lowry's family sent him to live uh, with relatives in Chicago. Um, ultimately, though, he returned to Alabama for his last years of high school and then went on to college in Alabama. Later, he went to the uh, Chicago Ecumenical Institute to obtain a Doctor of Divinity degree. And again, in 1952, he left Chicago, uh, this time with a wife, uh, and he left Chicago to head back to Alabama, to Mobile, Alabama, to be the pastor of a Methodist church. Now, I want you to think about this. Um, Reverend Lowry twice had a chance to escape to the north. I mean, no question, Chicago and the north uh, had and continue to have the problems around race, but he had the chance to be in the north, and you may remember the great migration that occurred in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s of African Americans out of Jim Crow South. He had the chance to stay in the north, but he went back to Alabama, back to the lion's den. That gives you an idea of Reverend Lowry's uh, degree of courage. Everything changed in 1955 after Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery, 
We all know that story. Reverend Lowry got involved in helping to lead the Montgomery bus boycott. Two years later, in 1957, he helped found the Southern Christian Leadership uh, uh, Conference. Um, ultimately, he would lead uh, SLCC from 1977 to 1997. Of course, Reverend Lowry became close to Dr. King, and uh, Reverend Lowry helped lead the Selma to Montgomery, Alabama march in 1965. And in the mid-1960s, marching to his own beat, Reverend Lowry co-founded the Black Leadership Forum that worked to end apartheid in South Africa. So in this regard, Reverend Lowry excuse me, was an international, an international idealist. Ultimately, Reverend Lowry settled in Atlanta at a large Methodist church. By the early 2000s, still marching to his own beat, he was advocating for the end of the death penalty and prison criminal justice reform. Most telling, um, he was also, also advocating for LGBTQ civil rights including marriage equality. This is in the early 2000s. Need I remind you that Reverend Lowry is African-American, was African-American. And need I remind you that the African-American community um, has great difficulties around acceptance of LGBTQ people. That was a very broad statement that I just made to you, but generally that applies. Now, think about this. It's the early 2000s at a time when um, not even white-color politicians or leaders were talking about marriage equality. And yet you have um, an African-American pastor talking about the need for everyone to be able to love whomever it is that they love and to even get married. That tells you, I think, the degree of Reverend Lowry's idealism, grit, and imagination. And I think that merits a huge wow. Two other things to know about Reverend Lowry. First, um, at Coretta Scott King's funeral in 2006, Reverend Lowry, he spoke. He was one of the people who spoke. This was on the heels of the Iraq war beginning um, and on the idea of this weapons of mass destruction never being found. Um, with then-President George W. Bush in the audience, Reverend Lowry said, quote, we know now there were no weapons of mass destruction over there, but Coretta knew, and we know that there are weapons of misdirection right down here. Millions without health insurance, poverty abounds, for, bill for war, billions more, but no more for the poor, unquote. I mean, we are talking about a man who was not afraid to talk um, truth to power. Second thing about Reverend Lowry. Um, he spoke at President Obama's inauguration, and he gave the benediction um, there. Six months later, President Obama conferred on Reverend Lowry the Medal of Freedom, the highest award that any civilian can get in America. I have one last quote that really describes how Reverend Lowry approached the world, and that quote is this. Um, as reported in CNN in March of 28, excuse me, on March 28th, as reported in CNN by Amira, Amir Vera and Tricia Escobedo. Um, uh, this is what they wrote. Um, with all the accolades and honors he, Reverend Lowry, received during his lifetime, Lowry never stopped working to empower people to unite uh, to fight for their rights. Quote, 
as one, we can poke you in the eye, unquote, he told the Atlanta Tribune, holding up one finger, then shaping his hand into a fist, he went on to say, but, quote, but if we come together, we can knock you out, period, unquote. Reverend Lowry died on March 27th. He lived a life of a true idealist. Remember his name, please, and remember his accomplishments. And remember, remember that that teenage boy who was bullied by a white police officer and who almost went off the rails ultimately became a man of great accomplishments and great courage. Okay. Thank you. We're going to do our um, interview, and when we come back, uh, you'll get me. You'll get me new for uh, the C block. Thanks so very much. If you're looking to save money on your home or building improvement project, check out Better Futures Minnesota's reuse retail warehouse in South Minneapolis. We carry salvage building materials such as cabinetry, flooring, plumbing fixtures, appliances, lighting, and more, saving you money and saving the planet by keeping these items out of the landfill, by giving them another life. Selections change daily, and we also take donations. Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com and look under Reuse Warehouse to learn more. Let us know AM950 sent you. Rending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Okay, and now um, a uh, repeat performance or interview of Usho Lan from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center um, that I did in 2018. You will love this interview. Usho is very comforting and an extremely wise man. So listen, please, and I'll see you on the other end for the C-Block. And I have somebody who I adore, and I think that that is the only right word, um, and so respect here in the audience, here in the studio with me, Busho Lan, who is my teacher at the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. Busho, thank you for being here. Oh, you are so welcome. It is, I'm just thrilled. Oh. I'm thrilled to be here, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. You know, me. I have wanted to have you on this show for the longest time. I Yay. have, and I just want you to know that. Oh, okay, We've arrived. <laughs> Because you are, um, and we'll get into it, but to me, you, you embody um, idealism. You really do. And so um, what I, we've got some time here to talk about, um, uh, you know, a little, and we can pick up on Dietrich Bonhoeffer at some point here, but um, uh, you, you, you teach, um, you are one of our spiritual teachers at the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center on Lake Calhoun, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, how long have you done that? Well, uh, I first walked through the doors of MZMC back in 1993. Okay. If you can believe it. Quite a long time, but I've been a regular there um, for about a dozen years now and teaching for probably eight. Okay. Something All like right. that, yeah. Well, so why don't we start by uh, you talking about what is Zen Buddhism mm-hmm. and how is it a little bit different than, you know, quote-unquote Buddhism in general? Orthodox, yeah. That's a great, great question. Uh, and so the, the 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 short version, 
because <laughs> it's a great question, which means it's a long answer. <clears throat> the short version that's occurring to me um, this morning is that Zen is a uh, an expression of the Buddhist tradition that comes to us uh, from China. And it really represents kind of a fusion of orthodox uh, Indian Buddhism from India uh, with Chinese culture and sensibility and especially uh, the tradition of Taoism. So Zen is uh, sometimes been described as kind of a marriage or the child of the marriage of Taoism from China and uh, Buddhism from India. And we certainly consider ourselves to be uh, a school of Buddhism, um, but you can really strongly see the cultural overlay of uh, earth-affirming uh, Chinese ideas, um, the, the teachings of Taoism with the, the cyclical embrace tension of opposites, uh, formlessness, this kind of stuff that, that wouldn't have been present in quite the same way in traditional Buddhism. So yeah, Zen has got its own, uh, its own unique flavor and it tends to be um, quicker to embrace humor, uh, quicker to embrace paradox, uh, quicker to embrace not knowing and having that be okay. Um, yeah, it, it matches my personality, <laughs> especially the joke part. Well, um, and you know, so let's talk about compassion as yeah. a fundamental um, principle that, or foundation, yeah. as it relates to Buddhism in general, but particularly mm-hmm. to Zen Buddhism. How do, where does compassion, and particularly compassion for all humans, but particularly humans who don't have voices. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to start down the road towards idealism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually the marriage here, uh, the connection with, with idealism is, is really clear. And what a great starting point for us. Yeah, um, you, you say it really well, Ellie, um, with the word foundational. Because ultimately, um, and I think this is accurate, I think Buddhism has, has always been described as medicine to address human suffering. Mm. That's essentially what mm. it all comes down to. The metric in Buddhism is, is this helpful? Does this reduce suffering? You know, And um, compassion comes into play especially, it's in all forms of Buddhism, of course, but it becomes the core ideal, and that's actually the word we use, ideal, right, in what we call Mahayana Buddhism, which is uh, it's the majority of the world's Buddhists. It certainly includes Zen Buddhism. Um, a lot of folks would include Tibetan Buddhism in that category, mm-hmm. Mahayana Buddhism. Yep. And the primacy um, of the teachings of compassion become central because what happens here is if our practice, if our goal, if our lives are about the transformation of suffering, we then have to find somehow in ourselves the capacity to be with suffering, to be with the suffering of self and to be with, of course, the suffering of other. And at some point, and this is where the meditation uh, dimensions of some of the uh, types of Buddhism are so are so prized, that the line that we uh, sometimes create between the suffering of a busho and the suffering of an Ellie disappears. And I find the capacity, as all human hearts have, the ability to be present to my own suffering the way that I am present to yours. And I even stop distinguishing because this is about how do I meet, how do I meet suffering with acceptance, love, compassion? How do I meet? That's, that's the transformative agent. So everything, I think, in Mahayana Buddhism basically comes to, back to our capacity for compassion. That's our transformative agent. And when we talk about suffering, suffering um, has a various connotations. Yeah. But, in, 
But as it relates to Buddhism, part of it, is, part of the definition of suffering is our inability to control things, and that we, we, we fret, we worry, we. Yes. We, we want to control things that we cannot control. So much. And as a result, <laughs> we suffer for it. Yeah. Yeah. Wishing, uh, wishing it to be otherwise right. is one of my favorite kind of shorthands uh, to remind myself, oh, what is this? Oh, yeah. Whitbo. Whitbo. W-I-T-B-O. Wishing it to be otherwise. Right. So the, so the distinction we're making, I think, here is um, between pain, you know, stubbing one's toe and experiencing ouch. Uh, and suffering, which I think you say it really well, the, the desire to want to tr- change something, desire to want to control something, uh, having something we don't want, wanting something we don't have. Um, and that's a very human quality. And, and hurting for it. Oh, yes. And, of course, the more we want, the more we hurt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, right. Fundamental human experience. Well, and, and – um, and- this um, you talked a second ago about compassion, both for others and well as for self. Yeah. And I and when I train, you know, listeners, uh, you may remember that I do a lot of training and speaking across uh, North America about the need for us to have compassion for others and for ourselves. And one of the things I say is that it's very difficult to have compassion for others if we are not compassionate towards ourselves. If we're not, yeah. How can we give other people breaks if we're not giving ourselves a break? Yeah. You know, um, we hear that all the time, don't we? We can't love others until we love ourselves. And um, I don't know why this is, but most folks I've worked with, especially intimate, intimately, we tend to almost discount that and kind of skip it. But you're exactly, exactly right, Ellie. Um, and the connection here between the the way Buddhism talks about mind and consciousness makes perfect sense because to the extent that I have uh, understood my suffering, befriended my suffering, um, accepted and transformed it through my own compassion is my own capacity then to not only see yours, to understand yours, to accept yours, but to bear witness to it without the things that would normally get in my way, my judgment, my resistance, my defenses – um, people who are able to be deeply present to the suffering of another um, have done enough of their own inner work, enough of their own um, – it's almost like excavation or archaeology into their own history, right? Their own karma, their own past, their own pain that they don't have um, – they don't have that uh, – the arising of that control impulse that you pointed out. Um, and so when Ellie presents me with her suffering, I – I don't need to control it. I can actually just bear witness to it with love. So th- this connection you're, you're talking about, doing self first, is absolutely crucial. It's hugely important. Well, when we come back from our break, we'll talk more about Buddhism, and then we'll start tying it into idealism. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been li- I've been. This is uh, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. I've been speaking with Busho Lan from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. We're talking about intersectionality between Buddhism and idealism. When we come f- back from our break we'll continue with the interview um and listeners thanks for listening take care and we'll be back in a minute thanks hi alex of better futures minnesota does your business or organization need janitorial services lawn care or snow services obtain a free no obligation estimate from better futures minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on am 950 Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win. To learn more, 
Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com under business services. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. We are back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio. And if you're uh, watching on Facebook Live, you're seeing me seat dance. I'm always seat dancing when we have our music, <laughs> whether you know that or not. I've been uh, speaking with interviewing uh, Busho Lang from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. Uh, Busho also happens to be my teacher, whom uh, I just adore greatly, as I said earlier. Busho, before we broke, we started talking about compassion and compassion for self and for others. And you were here while I was doing the first part of the show about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. and, 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 and how first, I think, transformed by his experience of being, I mean, a German, okay? Yeah. Being among um, African Americans in Harlem in the early 1930s. Yeah. Um, and, and understanding what – I mean and, you know, it was not – the world was far less equal way back then. Um, but understanding how that transformed the way he looked at the world into something that, that he needed to act rather than sit back and do theology. Yeah. Um, and so how does that – you know, that experience of him – inform maybe something that you know of in, in, in Zen Buddhism mm-hmm. or maybe even you personally in one way or another because mm-hmm. I know that you are, you, are, you are a leader for our community. Well, the, um, the heart opening, you kind of you mentioned this um, during the Bonhoeffer piece that a lot of folks who um, begin to be guided and led by an ideal have some sort of cracking open, don't they? Some sort of heart opening experience, yeah. something that's transformative that um, orients them in a different way. It orients them in a different way. Um, in Zen, we sometimes say this is um, moving from becoming self-centered to becoming life-centered and realizing, oh, my life um, that I care for so much is also the same life as <laughs> <laughs> the life of the person in the car in front of me and the life of the person that he met in Harlem and the life of the, the Jews back in back in Germany, there's a cracking open and the center changes. So at some point um, at some point when we understand that we actually have the capacity to be an instrument for change, there's a huge amount of empowerment I think that comes from that. I actually have the capacity to change not only my experience of life, but the experience of others. And I honestly think the, the degree to which our hearts crack open um, is the degree to which we naturally extend the circle of compassion to include others because the other idea stops being quite so real. There isn't quite so much of an other anymore. I just yeah. – I love the phrase about our hearts cracking open. Yeah. I mean don't, yeah. I mean don't you think that part of what stifles people – is that we're afraid to allow our hearts to crack open. Yes. You know, we're afraid to show up. And, and I have a saying, so 
one of my sayings is that 99% of all people are good. 1% total sociopath. I mean, okay. But the other 99% of us have wonderful, empathetic hearts. But the vast majority yes. – are scared to death yeah. to use those hearts because we're afraid of what we will get involved in, yeah. what it will cost us in terms of time or money, yes. or, oh, my God, this is overwhelming. It's kind of scary. Why did I stop here? Why did I talk to this human that I would not ordinarily talk to? Yeah, I so agree with that. And fear, um, our, our, the fundamental experience we have of fear, not only is it universal human experience, but uh, spiritual practice, religious identity, um, uh, the work we do with other humans in social capacities, even in family capacities, is I think what starts to soften the clay of our heart. And we start to recognize our own fear and realize, oh, I can transform this. I can transform this. I understand that this wants to keep me small, that it actually wants to keep me safe. It's not an enemy. And yet, if I live by that place, my life gets smaller and smaller. It does. And uh the, and the first step, of course, is labeling it as fear. Yeah, just to recognize, <laughs> oh, I'm a scared mammal. Oh, yes, this is what happens. And then, okay, so what do I want to do with that? What do we do with a scared child? What do we do with a scared puppy? You know, you pick it up and hold it, and something begins to change, right? It becomes braver. It becomes braver because you're absolutely right. Yes, um, fundamental to Buddhism is this idea that uh, we're awake. We are awakeness. That is our fundamental identity. We are compassion. We are love. We are connection. There is only that. So what would get in the way of that? Oh, misunderstanding. I, I misunderstand. I become scared. I become right. ashamed. I get smaller. I begin to create defenses. I begin to create separation. Oh, I, I understand why I do that. But I also understand because I learned to do that, I can also learn something else. I can return to that original blessing, that original sense of non-separate. Wow. I love thinking that we have the capacity to do that. So what is it about idealists, though, that allow them to step out of that fear and into <clears throat> being willing to, in Bonhoeffer's case, risk his life? Yeah. <clears throat> in the case of other people, to be arrested? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of Dr. King. Yeah, How course. many times was he arrested? The letters yeah. from the Birmingham jail. You know, um, yeah. other religious leaders who are assassinated – yeah. You know, what, what, what do you think that it is? And um, I mean, uh, I'm also remembering the Buddhist monks in Vietnam yeah. and how they protested the war by self-immolation. Self-immolation, yeah. Um, so what, what do you think that it is? You know, that's such a great question. Um, and there's so many ways we can use language to describe it. Um, uh, some sort of deep conversion experience. I mean, I, that's a term I know we usually associate with the Christian faith, but some sort of radical realignment. That it's, <laughs> it's of course, my project, but it's not mine anymore. It, it's the project. It's the human project, the awakening project, the connection project, the love project. And um, when I see myself as having agency, power, the, the capacity to help that, to change to actually plant seeds in this moment of wisdom, of connection, of compassion, to surrender the idea of small self um, to that is um, natural, actually. There's, well, there's a naturalness to that, yeah. And you do. I mean, you know, I, I come to the center. You, you speak to 50 or 60 or 70 people at a time. And, mm -hmm. and when you speak, you are, you are helping humans mm -hmm. – Interact with the world in a better way because you're offering us tools to do that. I mean, I, I can attest to that and the power of you in particular because of how articulate you are and so 
you just you connect so many dots in such a way. The thing uh, that attracts me to Zen Buddhism is not only about compassion, but aren't Zen Buddhists charged with actively working to spread compassion in yeah. the world? It's not. And again, we're back to Bonhoeffer. Who yes. could have sat back as a theologian, yes. who could have said this is wrong in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and then from uh, you know, 5,000 miles away continued to say it was wrong but from safety. Yeah. But he actively worked to change Germany, to, to stop the hatred, to spread mm-hmm. compassion. Mm-hmm. So what is it about – why is Zen do that? Without a doubt. Um, a lot of different reasons and that's a great observation because I do think um, we are definitely called – to be engaged. In fact, it's, it's inescapable. Um, Zen has a long history of monastic practice, certainly of withdrawal from the world to, to begin to look at the heart, to look at the mind, to right. see the seeds of suffering here and transform those. There is definitely an understanding if I want to bring peace into the world, I have to have some. You know, there's a strong emphasis on contemplation for that reason. And yet, um, Zen is guided by, um, like all Mahayana Buddhism, is guided by what we call the bodhisattva ideal. The ideal, again, we're back to our favorite word, ideal, idealism. Um, The bodhisattva ideal is to recognize the non-separation of all beings and to recognize we are suffering. There is suffering here. And my vow, vow. my commitment, my – if it's lifetime after lifetime after lifetime or just moment after moment is there is suffering. I will be an agent of transformation for that suffering. And and I know that, you know, that is why I do my work. Yeah. I, I mean that, and it sounds so cliche. Yeah, but, I mean the it's reason. It's not, though, is it? <laughs> no, it's really real. No, it is, and I mean that is. I mean, people. Um, um, we're going down a side street here, so bear with me. I mean, I got asked last week. You know, don't you get tired of it? You know, speaking and training, and I'm on track to do 130, 140 trainings or talks this year, and, and my response back is, no. Yeah. No, not I at all, it. because yes. this. This energizes me because I can see in the room that maybe one or two yep. people are like totally connecting with what I am talking about, about our need to be better to each other, about yeah. how to be more welcoming to other humans. You say that perfectly. There is no exhaustion there. No. I super get that. And, and that is a sign that you're tapped into something, right? There is something going on there. And in that moment, I know this moment you're describing so well. Um, on a personal level, the little tiny individual, Busho, he gets tired all the time. He's complaining and cranky and <laughs> exhausted. But in that moment, something else happens. It isn't me anymore. It isn't me anymore. There's this big thing happening. And to get to be one small part of that, one atom of that wave right. of compassion or love, it's a, you'd give your life for that. And the wave is a great metaphor because all kinds of particles come together yeah. to do it. And I can see in my room as I'm doing my trainings, I can see like a wave being yes. created by people. That's exactly you right. You know, and this is not about, you know, how great the trainings are. It's about helping humans understand that they can – connect with each yeah. other, that we have all of these commonalities, yeah. that we, we make these decisions based on people by their, their appearance or by the religion that they practice or by, yeah. you know, um, whatever else that we use to group yeah. and label humans. And how intimately those things become connected to our fear. And so, wow, the time that I spend every day in meditation going, oh, hi, fear, I see you. <laughs> This is what this is about. Oh, you begin to tame that. You begin to transform come have that. Some, come have some tea. Ha, come have some tea. Come <laughs> have some tea. I will not feed you. <laughs> but I will, I will allow you in for tea. I see that you're here. Again, I see that you're trying to keep me safe. I'm beginning to, to disarm that. 
And so then later on in the day, when my fear arises, because there is something that I don't recognize, oh, ah, I recognize this. This is that fear thing that happens. Oh, right. There's no enemy in the room here. There's just me having a fear response. And I already know what to do with that. Hi, fear. Hi. Hi. Hi right. there. Oh, you're here. Okay, why don't you sit here, sweetie? But I'm gonna, <laughs> you can sit down there. I'm not going to let you drive. I'll let you sit here next to me because I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to go into this circumstance. And I do have fear. Yes, that's right. And I'm going to work past it because there's something bigger than fear. There's Absolutely. something truer than fear. Fear comes and fear goes. It's a function of our physicality. But there's also something way bigger than that going on. All right. Well, we're going to run out of time here. So the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, located where? And um, if, if listeners want to know more and maybe come, how do they do that? Please, yes. Uh, we, uh, we do a lot, of intro, uh, a lot of intro programming for folks who are new to Zen, even if you're not that into Buddhism. We certainly do a lot of meditation offerings. Uh, Minnesota Zen Center is on the east shore of, in the uptown area of Minneapolis of Lake Bidet, Makaska. What used to be Lake Calhoun. Um, our website is mnzencenter.org, and everything we do is there. Right, and there are, check it out. And people can come on Sunday mornings and listen to Dharma talks, which are teachings, lectures. Yep, Sundays and Tuesdays, intro classes and talks. They're welcome any day. Well, Busho, uh, I have just so enjoyed having you on this show. I, I, I want to have you back another time. I would so that love we can it. This is a gift more. to me. Uh, well, you, oh, are, yeah. you, are, you are a gift to me and to yeah. the world. Thank you. So we've been speaking with Busho Lan from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center about the intersectionality between Buddhism and idealism. Hopefully um, you found this enjoyable. I've found it fascinating. Thank you. Um, not because I'm in the conversation, but because I get to listen to Busho. Um, when we come back, I'll do my last segment, my C segment, a little bit about my work. Hi. Did you know there's deconstruction funding available now for homeowners and contractors in Hennepin County? If you are embarking on a remodel or teardown this year, consider hiring Better Futures Minnesota's deconstruction crews instead of demolition. By taking a house or building apart by hand instead of destroying it with heavy equipment, the materials can be reused or recycled instead of going into the landfill. It is much more cost-effective and is a carbon-neutral solution. Go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com and look under Business Services to learn more. And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, Boucholand, um, with the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. Wonderful. And just so you know, you can actually go to, uh, the, uh, Zen Center's website and you can see videos of all of his talks, of Boucholand's talks, as well as other talks by other teachers at the center. And all you have to do, the website is www.mnzencenter.org. And they have a number of different talks. Um, they are not open, of course, but they're doing everything virtually. So if you're interested, please do it because, you know, the Buddhists are really good at dealing with stress and very good at dealing with fear. So, all right, we're in my C block right now. And um, uh, I just uh, uh, want to talk with you about a number of different things, uh, kind of human to human here. Um, we're, you know, we're on lockdown. And that has made things a bit more difficult. Right now, I'm doing a show uh, from my living room uh, by telephone. Uh, next week, hopefully, I'll be back into the station. 
Um, and my goal is to go into the station to give you the best quality overall. But um, for right now, this is the way we have to do it. Um, battlefield conditions. I'm a wartime radio host. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, sorry. I just had to say that. All right. So um, uh, last week I had a um, a client involved uh, that I had previously done a, a training for uh, in um, last November. And, and I'm telling you the story very quickly because um, as I've been on lockdown, as you have as well, for me, people have been coming through because, of course, my training and speaking business has been pretty well uh, decimated. Um, and I had a client who I worked with last November who came forward and said, Ellie, um, we want you to do an online training for some of our team members, and we're going to pay you for it. And we want you to do it. And I was just, I've just got to tell you, I was so incredibly touched uh, that they would go to the trouble to ask me to do that, and then they're going to pay, pay me for it. And I mean, it's just... A, and, and uh, I'm sure that many of you, like me, have been having people who have been coming, you know, sort of um, out of the woodwork, who are now, you know, um, uh, reaching out. How are you? How are you doing? I've been hearing from so many different people. I've had a number of different Zoom sessions with people I haven't, you know, I haven't talked to, let alone Zoomed uh, with for uh, years. Um, but I'm reconnecting with a bunch of people, and I guess that is one of the silver linings, is that we are slowing down, that we are reconnecting with people. Um, and some of us are getting those things done that we've been putting off forever. I don't know about you, but I got some great therapy this week because I was able to um, get my balcony. I'm on the 12th floor of a condo building in downtown Minneapolis. I have a balcony, and I was able to get it um a summarized rather than winterized. So the covers came off my red and yellow Adirondack chairs. I was able to bring a, a summer rug uh, for the balcony out of storage. I got my I got my grill all cleaned up and ready to go. And most of all, I planted flowers. I planted seeds, not flowers. They're not flowers yet. I planted seeds. And you know what I use for planters? I cut up my cranberry juice um, containers and made them into an orange juice, cut off the tops, and voila, I have planters uh, for my seedlings, wildflower seeds. So if you hear a little joy in my voice about that, there is joy because I am a planter. I am a grower. I do build things, and um, I cannot wait till I see little green things coming out of my planters. What I want to talk with you now, though, is I want to talk about the concept of 100% love. I do. You know, um, we're at a time right now where um, there is a great amount of fear. There is a great, great, great amount of apprehension. I know that. Um, and I have some of that as well. I'm human just like everyone else. Um, but this is a time right now we're giving 50% love to someone or even 75% love to someone doesn't cut it. I received an email from somebody who reads my newsletter telling me they had been estranged from their brother for a number of years. And then their father got sick. Now, this was um, not from the virus, but from other things. And the woman uh, reached out to her adult brother, who by then had children, 
The children had never met their grandfather because of the family estrangement. And the woman reached out to her brother and told him about the father being sick and asked him to come. Now, again, this is before the virus, but she's relaying this story to me because she wanted to talk about how her view of things had changed because of the virus. And her brother did come with his family and children, and the children were able to see their grandfather um, before he passed, and the brother was able to say goodbye to his father, formerly estranged. And the brother, uh, the woman told me, they still had some words between the woman and her brother, but she said that afterward he emailed her and he thanked her for giving him the opportunity to say goodbye to their dad. We're in a time right now, everyone, where 50% or 75% love, as I've said, does not cut it. We're at a time right now where I urge you to be making phone calls, to be doing Zoom, or even better, and you've heard me say this before, writing notes or letters to the people who are important in your life. This is the time where you tell them that they matter to you. This is the time where you tell them that you love them. This is the time where you do not hold back, where you get past the Minnesota um, hesitancy about speaking from the heart. This is the time where you realize we are all in this together and we all need to hear about how much we are loved and valued. It is the time to say, I love you. We are vividly being reminded that life is fleeting. Please, to those in your life who you love, do not wait to say, I love you. Do not wait to tell them how much they have mattered to you. Don't. Finally, as I said last week, um, I care about you. I do. And I don't say that to you superficially. Um, if you need an ear or a boost of spirit, email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. I will respond to you. Um, also, I guess not finally, now the finally part. If there is a healthcare worker in your life, please tell them thank you. I live in a condo, as I said. My next-door neighbor, who's lived um, in his unit for a couple of years, I barely know, unfortunately. But he is a doctor. He's an emergency room doctor um, at HCMC in downtown Minneapolis. Last week, took out one of my note cards, one of my Monet note cards, because I have a lot of Monet note cards, and I wrote him a note, and I told him, that even though I didn't know him very well, that I cared about him, that if he needed someone to talk to, that I was willing to make that work somehow. And I told him, thank you. Thank you for putting your life at risk. Thank you for doing that for others. And thank you for doing that for me. 
We will get through this, everyone. We will. We are resilient. We are brave. We are very, very um, grit-filled. But it will be a long slog. And we cannot take that slog by ourselves. We cannot take it in isolation. We cannot take it just simply by doubling down. And by all means, you cannot take it by drinking more alcohol or popping more pills. The only way that we will get through this slog is we will do it by being together, by caring about each other, by reminding each other about what it is that we love of you, and by most of all, having faith and hope that it will be better. I don't know what our country will look like when it's done, but I do know this. I know that it will be fundamentally changed. And in some ways, that change can be phenomenal because we were due for a big cleaning. Okay, well, listen, everyone. It's been great to talk with you. I wish you the best. I'm here for you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing about the show. And thank you, most of all, for just going and being good to each other. Take care. Uh, oh, and I need to be a, do a big thanks to my sponsors, Brendan Electrolysis, Better Futures Minnesota, and a big thanks to, to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you are working under battlefield conditions, and you are doing just phenomenal work. All right. On that, everyone, have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks so very much. Be well and be healthy.